Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, is it true that blood cells don't have DNA? How can you prove to a flat earther that our planet really is round? And have scientists decided yet what really killed off the dinosaurs? These are some of the science questions that we'll be tackling with our special guest scientists on this week's Q&A programme. I'm Chris Smith, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. With me this week to take on your science questions are Matt Bothwell. Now, he's at the Institute of Astronomy. And is that a space science implement or object you have in front of you there, Matt? Um, it is. I have a meteorite with me. It's a can very a heavy. Feel? You can, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is as big as my fist and it's incredibly heavy. Yes, yeah, so it's an iron meteorite made of what's called meteoric iron. So it's, um, yes, about fist size, incredibly heavy. Where did it come from? Um, the sky, so it's, obviously. But... Well, it's from space, right? Uh, but yeah, so it fell in Argentina. So it's a very famous fall uh, a few hundred years ago that fragmented into many, many pieces. And so this is just one of them. What's it made of? It's what's called meteoric iron. So iron is the main component, which is uh, why it's so heavy. If this can be picked up on the Earth's surface, is, can you actually smelt that? Could I use that as a source of iron to make stuff from? You can, that's right. And so before humans actually discovered how to smelt iron in the Iron Age, this was the way that we used iron. So all iron tools and iron weapons that you know were built before the Iron Age were made out of meteoric iron. Okay, well, Matt, thank you very much. So space science questions, there you go, Matt Bothwell's way. Sitting next to Matt, Kate Feller is a marine biologist at Cambridge University. She investigates how animals see underwater. You've been on the programme a number of times. You're a good friend of our show, but this could be your swan song, at least for a little while, Kate. You're, you're leaving yeah, us. Yeah, it's really sad, but I'm headed back to the United States and uh, next Friday, actually. Okay, and what <laughs> will you do there? Uh, so I have a grass fellowship to work at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. So I'm actually on Friday flying to Florida to collect some mantis shrimp, which are the crustaceans I study, and then I'll bring them back to Woods Hole to study them for the summer. And then from there, I have a postdoc lined up to work at the University of Minnesota sometime around September. And mantis shrimp, these are, they're quite big creatures, aren't they? They can be sort of 15, 20 centimetres long, the uh, big They one. could be anywhere from a few centimetres long to the length of my forearm, depending on the species. They're their own classification of crustaceans, their own order, we call that. And there are over 400 species within that order. They've got a pair of striking appendages that operate a lot like the mechanics of a crossbow, where it's what we call a power amplified system, where they charge a spring with a latch engaged. And then when they pull the latch, boing, and they smash or spear whatever is in front of them. 
But they also have an incredible sort of visual ability, don't they? Because they can see colors way beyond what we can see. Yeah, as if one world record wasn't enough uh, for the fastest movement. They also have the most complicated eye on the planet, most complicated retina. They've got up to 16 cell types in their eye for seeing light, as opposed to we have four types of cells for seeing light. So that's just crazy. It certainly is. Well, marine biological questions, they're coming Kate's way. Also here is Jason Head. Now, Jason works at Cambridge University. He's a vertebrate paleontologist. Now, is that a bit of dinosaur bone sitting in front of you, Jason? Yeah, this is a cast of a dinosaur bone. And the bone in question is a bone called the prefrontal. And so this is part of the series of bones that actually form the top of the eye orbit on a dinosaur. And this dinosaur in question is named Protohadros birdeye. Uh, It was my master's thesis about a billion years ago when I was a student. And it is an animal that is closely related to the dinosaurs people generally like to call duck-billed dinosaurs. So this is an early stage in the evolution of hadrosaurid dinosaurs. What I'm looking at is something it's it's about also the size of my palm. It fits nicely in my palm. It has a smooth inner surface which is curved. It looks looks actually like the the eye socket of a human skull. Is that that effectively what it's analogous to? In in part. So if you you take your finger and you, you put it a kind of just on the roof of your eye above your, on your nose. On your, where your eyebrow is. Yeah. yeah. It, it is basically the bone under which they would have had eyebrows, had they had eyebrows, which they did not have. Thank you, Jason. Also with us is biochemist Diana Alexander. Now, Diana, your first time on the programme. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. You study all things genetics, and uh, apparently you have something to show me. Yes. So um, the lab got? that I work in studies DNA replication. So that's where the DNA that you have in a cell gets copied and that's required for when cells divide. The lab uses yeast to study this process. The lab really focuses on how DNA replication is regulated in the context of DNA damage. So you don't want the DNA to replicate when it's damaged because that can lead to further damage. Like cancer. Exactly, exactly. So I have a little tube with some yeast. Oh, can I see? uh, Yeah, sure. Ah, so I have a little specimen tube. These are called Eppendorfs, aren't they? You give me a little Eppendorf and it's got some yeast in it. Can Mm. I make wine with that? Um, No, well, the cells are actually dead and they are now prepared to have their DNA content measured. So we need a yeast funeral for that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I'll I'll add that to our collection of Mm -hmm. of interesting specimens. Thank you very much. That's uh, Diana Alexander. On to the questions. And let's start with this one for you, Kate, which has come in from Kiba. Why are some animals in the sea invisible and why don't land animals do this? So first of all, what invisible creatures are there in the ocean? There are so many. The majority of invisible animals in, on the planet are found in what's called the pelagic zone, or the pelagic animals, which means open ocean, open water. And it has evolved many, many times. So you can find worms, crustaceans, uh, jellyfish, fish, so many uh, mollusks. Like there are certain squid that can make themselves totally transparent. And the reason why there are so many in the ocean and not so much on land, like there are a few examples, like there are certain butterflies, these glass wing butterflies have transparent wings. They're absolutely stunning if you've never seen one. Find one at like the Zoology Museum. But the reason that transparency uh, is a lot more difficult on land is because of this thing called refractive indices. And so refractive index is just a fancy word to describe the property of light when it enters some sort of material, how it slows down. The refractive index of air is very low, whereas the refractive index of materials like glass or 
yeah, glass is a good one, windows are clear, is very high. So you have a very big difference. And so when you have a very big difference in your refractive index, then light is going to bend a lot when it enters that glass. And so what happens on a sunny day when you look at a window from the wrong angle? You get a really bright glare, which is not good if you're trying to be invisible. So water has a much higher refractive index. So does the material that animals are made out of. So you can really make that difference in how light moves through the materials very minimal. Uh, therefore, they you can't see them when you have a clear, even a, a piece of glass underwater is very difficult to see because that glare just doesn't happen. So it's easier for them to become invisible underwater. Yes. So therefore, given that it's a lot easier to do, they're more likely to do it. Correct. So some animals yes. do resort to that and it yeah. enables them to escape from being eaten. And actually one of my favorite solutions that terrestrial animals have come up with to avoid this, this anti-glare, great vocab, is a structure called a nipple array. Tell us more. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's an array of the literally like little nipples that will be on the surface of your transparent material. Uh, you find this on butterfly wings or moth wings, on a lot of insect corneas, so that they don't give off that glare. And essentially the way that the structure is kind of disrupts the uh, light's ability to produce glare. And it's called a nipple array. Let's let's have a giggle about that. Sounds nearly <laughs> as good as um, I heard this week about a beaver deceiver. Which is a, uh, when you want to introduce beavers to an area and you don't want them to flood the area, you have a way of tapping the water off. But the beavers don't block it because they don't know it's there. But um, uh, you nonetheless can accommodate the beavers and have the benefits of the beavers without them actually flooding you, you out of house and home. Matt? Yes, I just wanted to ask about invisible animals. So if a marine animal is invisible, that just means the photons are all passing straight through it. Is mm -hmm. it then blind because it can't capture any of the photons to use for vision? So this is actually what I did my PhD thesis on, or was an aspect of it. Um, a lot of crustacean larvae, for instance, like mantis shrimp larvae, use transparency as a way to disguise themselves in the open ocean because otherwise they'd get eaten very readily. However, they want to see because they're little predators themselves. And as you were, you were hinting at, you cannot actually see without having some sort of opaque screening pigment within your eye to isolate each photoreceptor from one another, because otherwise you'll muddle all of the pixels of the image that you're generating. And so... What they have evolved, a lot of crustacean larvae, but I studied the mantis shrimp, is this really beautiful material that unfortunately I published under the name of eyeshine. I would rather rename it as eye glitter because it is this beautiful blue-green glittery material that is over the surface of this black part of their eye that reflects the wavelengths that are behind them perfectly. It is a perfect match. And so they have this reflective camouflage strategy to enhance their invisibility in the open ocean because you can't have a truly transparent eye. Thank you very much, Kate. Uh, now, Matt, uh, Harriet would like to know the following. Do they have sunsets on Mars? So Mars does enjoy a nice sunset on a daily basis. They do, yes. So sunsets are obviously caused because our Earth is rotating. And so just from our point of view, when our planet swings around so we can see the sun again, that's a sunrise. And Mars is a rotating planet just like Earth. So there are sunrises and sunsets on Mars. They're a bit strange, though, because the Martian atmosphere is quite different to Earth's atmosphere. Uh, so sunsets on Mars are actually blue rather than the kind of reddy-orangey sunsets that we're used to here really? on Earth. Really? Blue? Why are they blue? Um, well, it's about the composition of the atmosphere. So Earth's atmosphere is um, gassy and fairly dense. And so when the sunlight passes through Earth's atmosphere, the, the light is getting scattered by very, very, very small particles, you know, the kind of molecules of nitrogen and oxygen in the air. Mars's atmosphere, though, is very thin and very dusty, so the scattering is getting done by dust particles instead, and they're much, much bigger. 
And so there's, there's a whole different mechanism that does the scattering. And so, in fact, the way dust particles scatter light is that blue light, the short wavelength light, gets scattered forwards towards the observer. So if you're watching the sunset on Mars, it looks blue. Because on Earth, the tiny particles scatter the blue light, so your brain is seeing blue coming from all across the sky, so our brain tells us the sky is blue and the sun looks a little bit yellower as a consequence. But when the sun gets down to the horizon on Earth, it does look red, presumably because it's had lots and lots of blue light taken out. So therefore on Mars, if you've got lots and lots of the blue light actually coming straight to you, but the red light's coming out because the dust, big dust is scattering the red, it's going to look bluer the, the, the more atmosphere that the light comes through, which is what, why you're saying it does look bluer towards the end of the day. Uh, yes, also, it's, it's actually a completely different uh, scattering mechanism. So on Earth, we have something called Rayleigh scattering, uh, which is just like you say, so the short wavelengths get scattered away in all directions. And that's why the sky is blue and the long wavelengths pass straight through. So that's why the sun looks ready orange. Um, on Mars, um, we have something called, I think it's pronounced my scattering, it's M-I-E scattering, my scattering. <clears throat> That's a completely different mechanism when you have larger particles, and that rather than scattering the short wavelengths in all directions, like happens in the Earth's atmosphere, you preferentially scatter the wavelengths, uh, the short wavelengths in the direction that the light came from. So you, you end up with the blue light being boosted away from the sun. If and you like, presumably the as it gets towards the horizon, that effect is going to become more and more acute because the, the path of the light is greater through more of the atmosphere. Exactly, so you're going to yeah. see more of that blue effect. Exactly. So the sun in the Martian sky looks uh, fairly like the sun in the Earth's sky, apart from a bit smaller. But as it gets lower and lower towards the horizon, it looks more and more blue. Okay. Is there a green flash that happens on a Mars sunset or something with a different wavelength where it the when the last little bit of the ellipse of the sun passes below the horizon just that very very last moment Have you moment, ever seen it? Is it real? Cuz people refer highly, to it but I've never seen it. It's highly debated. We I mean I've done a lot of research sitting on the beach at sunset usually with a beer with a tequila or something uh, tequila yeah, sunrise and, even. And <laughs> I wa- we specifically watch it for the green flash and I mean the theory behind it seems plausible as far as scatter and everything. So yes, that green, green flash? Or yes or no on Mars? What colour would it be on uh, Mars? So, so the green flash is absolutely real. Um, I've never seen it myself. So just I think in the same way that you've been looking for it, it's a bit of a tradition amongst astronomers. If you're observing at an observatory or something to go out at sunset and try and see a green flash. Um, I've never been able to see one. But as far as I know, there should be a green flash on Mars. Matt, thank you. Diana, over to you. Joe has sent this in for you. I heard blood cells don't have any DNA. Why is that and how do they grow? Is that true, true, Diana? Uh, Yes, it is, exactly. Mature red blood cells have no nucleus, which is the compartment that houses the DNA. So immature red blood cells actually do have a nucleus, but when they become the mature red blood cells, the nucleus is actually ejected, so they have no nucleus and no DNA. So as to why this is and how they function, I think the answer really lies in what they do. So red blood cells, their only real job is to carry oxygen around the body. Not having a nucleus is actually useful for this in terms of they can have more space for haemoglobin, which is the protein that carries oxygen. And also um, the red blood cells need to be able to squeeze through narrow capillaries and they have this biconcave disc shape. And without a nucleus, this is possible. It's sort of figure eight shape. On, when you look yeah. at them side on, they look like a sort of number eight turned yeah, exactly. on its side, don't yeah. they? Thank you, Diana. And now here's a question for you, Jason. I've heard that dinosaurs are more closely related to birds than other types of animals like mammals. Is this true? So are birds living dinosaurs, essentially? Yeah. Um, And the answer is absolutely. So we know from skeletal anatomy and now we know from preserved soft tissue remains in the fossil record that birds are actually um, a specialized type of dinosaur. They're a specialized type of theropod dinosaur. 
And so when we actually reconstruct the evolutionary relationships of dinosaurs to include birds, what you see is that all living birds are more closely related to Tyrannosaurus rex or to Velociraptor than any of them are to Triceratops or Stegosaurus or any of the other dinosaurs that you got in your bag of plastic dinosaur toys as a kid. So we see this from their skeletal anatomy, and now we have, from these very fine-grained, well-preserved environments from um, the late Jurassic on up into the Cretaceous, evidence of feathers in what you would call non-bird dinosaurs. And now we know, or we have strong hypotheses, that feathers initially evolve as both um, a form of kind of insulation for being warm-blooded, and also as probably communication structures, just like in modern birds. It's amazing we can actually repaint the picture of what these dinosaurs look like, isn't it, by by studying that there's enough vestige in the fossils, in the fossil records, in order to recreate the color scheme. Absolutely, that you can actually find in preserved soft tissues the correlates to different kinds of color cells in modern feathers, and from that we can actually reconstruct in some of these animals what we think their plumage would have been colored like. Okay. Yeah, there also are great fossil examples of structural colors, which is when uh, an animal produces color not using a pigment. So if you grind up the colorful tissue, it's just white. Like or a black. butterfly wing is exactly the same like a thing, butterfly wing. And so, uh, I, yeah, I just heard about some great research going on studying fossils and what color they were based on the structures that they find that have been preserved, in, which is wicked. There's there's one place in Germany called Grubmessel, which is a it's called a Lagerstatt, which is a, an area of incredible preservation. It's an oil shale. And in that oil shale, the insects actually preserve their colors. 50 million year old color and preserved in an insect. Still to come on The Naked Scientist this week, we're asking, how can one prove that the Earth really is round? Are gas giant planets 100% gas? Or is there something else in there? And how do we tell what the dinosaurs had for dinner? all those years ago. But first, Kate, you're a mantis shrimp expert, so this question is definitely one for you. Tom says mantis shrimps are really good at punching, so how do they move so quickly underwater? Why doesn't the sort of friction with the water tear them to pieces? That's a really good question, and actually we don't know. (laughs) There are are some great uh, biomechanics people studying mantis shrimp strikes and their appendages in the States, and they have actually built a model of a mantis shrimp appendage, like one of the ones that I have here. The whole thing is exactly the same, except for, of course, the material that it's made out of. They have to try different materials because we only have what humans can make when you make a 3D print or a cast of something. And they found that while they could replicate the actual mechanics of the strike, you, you end up like when you when you quickly run your hand through a bucket of water, a lot of bubbles will follow your hand uh, from the friction that's happening or the drag. When you take a video of a mantis shrimp striking underwater, there are no bubbles. It is It just smoothly goes through the water. And the only bubble that forms is this crazy cavitation bubble that is actually a vacuum. Which of they them, want. Which they want at the point of impact. That's something that is really cool and would be really nice to know more about. Jason. I have a more general question. Are they prey specific? Are mantis shrimp specialized for a particular type of prey with that strike or are they just opportunists? Yes. We generally categorize mantis shrimp into two categories. The spearers, which is like what I have here or in my little shadow box that I brought for show and tell. Sometimes they'll have these gnarly harpoons. showing us a bit of a mantis shrimp. I have a shadow box (laughs) full of weapons, mantis shrimp weapons. And you can see on these 
larger species, they've got these huge harpoons, and that's specialized for stabbing soft-bodied prey like fish, and they'll just stab them and then bring them up to their face and then just start eating them whether or not they are dead. And uh, <laughs> then the other type of mantis shrimp are what we call the smashers, and these are the ones that are really the world record holders for getting that speed from their strike. And they have, the species I have here as an example is super tiny. This is one of those uh, really small species, although these guys can get to be about the six inch length size as well. But they have what is essentially on their elbow, a big hammer that they will smash hard things with like snails or crabs or each other or rocks. So we don't know. There's still a, um, a question there about how they manage to move so quickly and not cause these cavitation except where they want it to happen so there's there's important research to be done for you for the next two years okay you have to go and find out matt can you help andy out and andy's saying how can i easily prove to someone who doesn't believe that the earth is round that the earth is round can you give us all an argument to defeat the flat earthers please well, yeah, so luckily it is quite easy. So we've known that the Earth is spherical for thousands and thousands of years. You can do it with just observations and common sense, really. There are a number of ways to do it. Uh, I guess two of the most simple ones. So one of them, if you go to a beach, um, we talk about looking, looking for the green flash before, like when, maybe while you're looking for the green flash. If you're sitting on a beach and you watch a ship disappearing over the horizon, it doesn't just fade into nothingness. It will actually dip below the horizon and look like it's sinking down. And that's because the Earth curves away. Another one, which is probably my favourite one, is to think about lunar eclipses. So a lunar eclipse is when you have the sun and the earth and the moon all in a straight line and the moon passes into the earth's shadow. The shape of the earth's shadow on the moon is always round. This happens no matter what time the lunar eclipse is occurring. If it's a flat earth, to get a round shadow, that can only happen at midnight. Uh, but you see lunar eclipses at all different times and the shadow is always round, which means that the earth has to be spherical. Also, if one looks at the moon, this is a round shape. If one looks at other planets, you see things like moons orbiting other planets. They themselves are round. So there's lots of evidence that these things tend to be round. The sun is round. Well, yeah. So it's kind of difficult to understand why the earth wouldn't be. No, I've never heard of any flat Mars conspiracy theorists. Just flat Earth. Okay, well, thank you for that. Appreciate that, Matt. Um, Diana, um, we've got a question here for you from Rob. Why haven't our bodies evolved ways to destroy cancer in ourselves? So first of all, can you explain to us what's actually happening with cancer and why haven't we evolved to defeat cancer, or have we? Cancer is uncontrolled cell division, and it leads to the formation of tumours, which can cause losses in tissue function, which can eventually result in death. So this is bad for our bodies, so we kind of would expect it to be selected against and potentially that we would have evolved not to get cancer. But we do still see people get cancer. So I think the answer to this largely lies in how natural selection works to maximise reproduction. We have evolved ways to prevent cancer at an early age. So we have very efficient DNA repair mechanisms which repair DNA damage that can lead to mutations which drive cancer. And these work really well. So you see cancer occurs at a very low rate in younger people. But in older people, the rate of cancer increases because there are more mutations that accumulate because the repair mechanisms aren't 100% effective. So the theory is that we haven't evolved to prevent it completely because we want to maximise reproduction. So you have selection to prevent cancer at a young age, but it's not selection to prevent cancer indefinitely because the force of natural selection decreases with increased age because there is a lower chance of reproduction. So what we get is kind of a balance where it's unlikely to get cancer at a young age, 
but um, we haven't evolved to prevent it indefinitely. So we've evolved not to get cancer up until the time by which we would have reproduced, but after that, your body no longer has as much of an ability to select because exactly. it won't harm your ability to pass your genes on exactly. to the next generation. Yeah. Thank you, Diana. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. I'm joined by a panel of experts who are ready to take on your science questions. With me are biochemist Diana Alexander, astronomer Matt Bothwell, paleontologist Jason Head and marine biologist Kate Feller. Coming up, if all of our cells carry the same DNA, how does a skin cell know it's a skin cell and a brain cell know it's a brain cell? Also, what's inside gas giant planets like Jupiter? Stay tuned to find out. Meanwhile, if you'd like to ask us one of your own questions then why not send them in? You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email us. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. For now, though, it's quiz time. Um, we're going to have girls versus boys this week, so that means that uh, Team 1 are going to be Matt and Jason and Team 2 are going to be Kate and Diana. So we'll start with Team 1. What drug takes the longest to leave the blood, cannabis or alcohol? You may confer, of course. I, I would guess cannabis. I would also guess cannabis. So you're going cannabis. Okay, let's find out if you're right or wrong. And you get a bing. So you know, it's right. Okay, so they're off to team one. Got it right. That's right. So the answer is cannabis. It's detectable in the bloodstream for over 300 hours. Booze, on the other hand, is gone after 12. Both do remain detectable in your hair, though, for 90 days. So you can't get away with it. Team two. This is uh, Kate and Diana. Um, the longest to degrade in landfill. Rubber Wellington boots or nylon poncho? Hmm... Rubber boots or nylon poncho? I would say the nylon poncho. Yeah, yeah. Rubber, well. rubber theoretically is kind of natural. Mm. Nylon. Go, for the, go for the nylon poncho. <laughs> you were saying to me before the show that every time you've been on this program, Kate, every you've time. lost the quiz. I'm cursed. And you were hoping this is going to be your, your <laughs> final fanfare, final farewell you're going to win. So you're off to a really flying start. That's nope. great. No, you're wrong. Um, the rubber boots, the rubber boots uh, should take between 50 and 80 years, the nylon only 30 or 40. So uh-huh. it's rubber boots was the answer to the longest lived in landfill. Right, back to team one. Tough one for you. What's going to be longer, a barnacle's penis or the sperm of a fly? I remember being told in secondary school that barnacles have incredibly long penises, and that stuck with me for some reason. I'm, I'm also going to go with the barnacle penis on that Barnacle one. penis has it. You are nasty. <laughs> Kate's going, yes, yes, yes. Did you, did you know the answer to that? Uh, I knew that both were extremely long. <laughs> it, it'll really surprise you. I did know the, the answer to this one um, because Drosophila, fruit flies, have a, a sperm which is nearly six centimetres long. And you mm. think the fly is a matter of millimetres. In that absolutely incredible, enormous sperm. Barnacles do have very big penises relative to their body size. Mm. But barnacles are really small unless you're talking about the big ones in the Indian Ocean. Um, and so as a result, the penis is actually not that big, but relative to their body size, it is pretty large. Team two, this is back to Kate and Diana. What goes the longest without sleep? Walruses or killer whales? There's a marine one for you. You should better get that. Mm. Most marine mammals mm. do a really cool thing where they put half their brain to sleep, oh, yeah. and then but they're still technically kind of awake. I feel like killer whales. Yeah, I feel like the whale. No reason. You're going for the whale. Yeah. yeah. You're going for the whale. 
Ah, so we're level pegging now. Round that up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. So, killer whales is the answer. Walruses have been observed to stay active for 84 hours with get, without getting any of the usual sleep deprivation problems. But killer whales are well known to be able to go into a semi-sleep mode so they can keep swimming. And when they're born, the calves and their mothers go for weeks without even that much sleep. Now, the longest that a human has managed to stay awake for, does anyone know roughly the, the record for...? I think it's around a week, isn't it? Yeah. 11 days. Oh, um, yeah, Ran- Randy Gardner um, that set rough. that record. Um, I think he probably did feel pretty rough, but he, he, he did perform quite well. He did a press conference at the end of it and, and actually <laughs> answered the questions rather well. Yeah. But he then slept for about 14 hours the first day and about 10 hours the next day. He, he did do sort of sleep catch-up. You do get symptoms, though. Probably not to be advised. <laughs> right, back to team one. What can hold its breath for the longest, dolphins or sloths? I feel like this is a trick question. Right. I mean, I feel like, I feel like the obvious answer is dolphins, which makes me want to say sloths. I, I could be persnickety and ask for a species-level distinction <laughs> on the dolphins, but um, I'm going to fall for the trick, and I'm going to say dolphins myself. Okay, dolphins. No, no, okay. What, do, what do you dolphin. think, Matt? Are you a dolphin? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll say the sensible answer and say dolphins. Uh, you should have gone with your gut instincts, you see. You see, these people who set university exam questions, they know all the tricks. You, should, you shouldn't fall for them. Um, now, sloths apparently can hold their breath for over 20 minutes. Some have even been reported holding their breath for up to 40 minutes. They slow down their heart rate to do it. Um, they're really good swimmers, I was amazed to learn. Dolphins, on the other hand, can normally manage only about 10 minutes underwater. So the sloths have it. Right, look, you, you're in with a chance here, Team 2. OK, which journey is going to take the longest, from Saturn to the moon Titan or from the centre of the sun to its surface? What do you think? Where's my coin? I need to flip it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like sun to surface. Yeah, sure, why not? Just got pretty big. Okay. No, it's going to take longer to get to Titan from Saturn than it would to escape the sun, ignoring the effects of gravity and being burnt into oblivion by the centre of the sun. Saturn to Titan is over a million kilometres. The sun's radius, 700,000. So uh, you didn't quite clinch it. So you'll have to leave with with your reputation in tatters. Yeah, well, no, my reputation intact of always losing. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Yes, at least you're consistent. I am consistent. Consistent, if nothing else. Let's talk to Peter, who's on the phone. Hello, Peter. Something which has been bothering me ever since it happened. I'm an old man now. Man supposedly landed on the moon nearly half a century ago, 50 years ago. Why has nobody ever been back? Was it stage managed because of the Cold War at the time? Did they really get to the moon or was it stage managed? Let's ask Matt because he's our Institute of Astronomy representative. So Matt, uh, was it all a giant fiction or is it fact? It's definitely fact, I'm afraid. So uh, we did go back to the moon a few times. There was the whole Apollo program, which sent several people to the moon. Um, it definitely did happen. And I think the reason we didn't go back is because the reason we went to the moon in the first place uh, was because of this Cold War space race that kind of ended. I think we realised uh, fairly early on that we can do as much with robots and it's much cheaper and much safer than sending people. So that's why uh, we don't tend to send humans into space so much anymore. We can know for certain that we uh, went to the moon, you know, because we we have artifacts on the moon. We we left a big reflecting mirror on there, which we can uh, bounce lasers off to measure the distance to the moon. People are doing that every day, aren't they? There's a laser beam that pings off that mirror, and that's how we know the moon is moving, what, two centimetres further from the Earth every year, give or take? Something like that, yes, that's right. Yeah, so we, we left things on the moon when we went there, so yes, we can be very certain that we went. Also, there was a mission in 2003, which was called SMART-1, which was the first example of an iron drive 
engine-driven craft, which which took lots of pictures of the moon. And they finished the mission by flying over a lot of those landing sites and took pictures of all of the bits and bobs that the astronauts left up there. So we do actually have you know visual data independently gathered as well. So yeah, I'd say it's a it's a pretty convincing case, isn't it? That we we don't think it was faked. Um, yes, I'm, I'm very happy that it wasn't faked. Thank you very much, Matt. Now, Jason. This question is from Alice, and she says, do we have any animals that are alive now that are similar in size to the largest dinosaurs or the dinosaurs genuinely, the kings? Well, we do. We have animals alive today that are larger in terms of their body mass than any of the dinosaurs, but they live in completely different environments. So dinosaurs are exclusively terrestrial uh, in their fossil record, I should say. So the largest terrestrial dinosaurs are a group called sauropods. These are, again, to go back to your bag of plastic dinosaur toys, these are the ones with the long necks. And these animals uh, include some absolute giants. Uh, There's a group called titanosaurs. And several members of that clade may have exceeded 60 to 70 tons, possibly. But the largest baleen whales today still exceed them in overall body mass. Though those are obligately marine animals where you effectively have no weight in water. Nothing on land today approaches dinosaurs in their size. And in part, that's because of the anatomical physiology of dinosaurs compared to mammals. Birds are effectively hollow-boned dinosaurs whose lungs invade their skeletal tissues. Uh, they're extremely light, and it's prob- very likely they inherited that from dinosaurs that had evolved those strategies initially to achieve large body size. When and, you say that their lungs invade their skeleton, what do you mean? Birds have actually very pneumatized vertebral columns, uh, and there are actually sacs of the lungs that actually occupy the spaces within those within the vertebrae. Um, and so it's part of this very complex flow-through lung that birds have where respiration in a bird doesn't actually have a dead phase. So every time you inhale as a mammal, you get this good oxygen. And every time you exhale, all you're doing is getting rid of carbon dioxide. Um, with the, the very complex lung system that birds have, they're constantly moving oxygenated blood across their um, tissues to exchange gas. So they never have one of these dead phases where there's no blood going or there's no oxygen going to the bloodstream. And that obviously enables them to be very active and to fly very fast and they're not compromised and it means they're lighter. Exactly. So, so what's the relevance to a dinosaur then of that? Um, this may very well have uh, initially evolved as an adaptation for being large. Uh, this is uh, so to be a fairly large, initially bipedal animal. The earliest dinosaurs were fairly small, but they were bipeds bigger than most birds are today. And so you you have to deal with issues of body mass. And one of the ways to lighten the load is to actually have hollow bones and to have a very efficient respiratory system. Interesting theory, but don't you end up needing bones that are really, really strong to hold up really big mass? Because, you know, I remember I, I went on safari in Africa about 20 years ago. I was in Zimbabwe and I found an elephant's leg bone. Mm-hmm. When you looked at it in cross-section, unlike a bone you'd get from the butcher from a cow or something, which would have a very clear marrow cavity where the bone is quite different, it's spongy in appearance, yeah. and that's where all the stem cells that make your new blood are. In the elephant bone, it was almost like solid rock right the way from the outside, the cortex right the way to the centre. And I asked the safari guy, you know, why is it like that? And he said, well, elephants make most of their blood in their pelvises and they actually have legs that are solid like tree trunks because they're supporting six to eight tons. And if they didn't have that, their bones would bend. So what does a dinosaur do then? So the largest dinosaurs uh, have very massive elephant-like columnar legs. The arms and the legs of the weight-supporting bones are incredibly dense. But the vertebral column is actually incredibly delicate, um, especially in these giant sauropods. The The vertebrae are almost just a series of struts. Uh, they're very, very pneumatic, they're very light, and they're very specialized for basically uh, resisting torsion, resisting forces, while not being massive and dense. 
Thank you very much, Jason. I've always wondered that. Um, now, Diana, I've got this question here from Tim, and he says, if all the cells in our body have the same DNA, why are some of them eye cells and some of them are hand cells? What's going on? Exactly. So um, all of the cells in our body pretty much have the same DNA, so the same chromosomes with the same sequences. But the reason why cells are different is because they have different genes that are expressed. So to kind of explain gene expression, if you imagine the genome as a big book with recipes for proteins, uh, gene expression is where some of those recipes are copied into RNA, which are just kind of like copies of pages of the book. And those are used directly to produce the proteins. So different cell types have different complements of proteins that are expressed, and these determine their function. So for a retinal cell, you get um, production of photoreceptors. So that gene for the photoreceptor is expressed. Um, So what underlies these differences in gene expression is epigenetic mechanisms. And those are kind of the mechanisms that regulate which genes are expressed by determining which of the pages in the book of the genome are used to make proteins. I get it. So can I summarise then saying every cell in the body has got a copy of the recipe book, Mm -hmm. but different cells in different tissues achieve their specialisation just by playing out or making some of those recipes, but not all of them. So a brain cell is playing out a brain cell specific recipe of genes, Mm -hmm. whilst a hand sort of muscle cell Mm -hmm. is expressing hand muscle genes and a skin cell knows it's a skin cell. Mm -hmm. I suppose the key question is also how do those cells know to do that in the first place? Mm -hmm. So during the process of differentiation, which is cell specialisation, these epigenetic mechanisms are laid down and put in place. So transcription factors, which are these proteins that determine which genes are expressed, will lay down these epigenetic marks and that will determine which genes will be expressed later on in the final form of the cell after it's differentiated. Thank you very much. Now, Matt, uh, we've got this one for you from Izzy. What's at the centre of gas giants? Are they 100% gas? First of all, what is a gas giant? And then can you answer Izzy's question, which is what's in the middle and how would we ever know? So a gas giant is a big gassy planet. So think of something like Jupiter or Saturn. So instead of what we call the terrestrial or rocky planets like Earth, they're much, much bigger and they're not rocky, they're gassy. Um, at the centre of them, no, so they're not 100% gas. Uh, they do have various weird and wonderful things in their centre. So if you imagine falling down into Jupiter, say, so the outside is mostly gas and that's the kind of the outer cloud layers that we see. What gas is it? Um, it's mostly hydrogen in Jupiter. And then as you as you descend into the planet, uh, things get quite strange and the pressure goes higher and higher and the temperature goes higher and higher. And eventually the hydrogen gets pressed into something called a supercritical fluid. It's a very weird and wonderful state of matter that we don't really have on Earth because you need very, very high pressures. Below that, the hydrogen is compressed even more into a state of matter called metallic hydrogen. So it's hydrogen that's being squashed so hard it basically becomes a metal. And that's how and you get, you get massive magnetic fields uh, flowing through there. So that's why Jupiter is like a big magnet in the sky. It's because of all this metallic hydrogen in it. And then at the very centre, there is a solid core. Uh, so at the very centre of Jupiter, there will be a kind of rocky, icy core at the middle. And we've been able to study that just gravitationally. So when we send missions to Jupiter, we look at the moons orbiting the planet and we study the, like, the gravitational interaction. And that lets us make a very accurate map of uh, Jupiter's gravitational field that can only be explained by having a solid core in the centre. Can I ask, what's the? do we know what the mineral composition of the core is or is there a decent hypothesis for it? I think the answer is no, we don't really know, to be honest. I think we, we know that it has to be there gravitationally. We have theories based on how planets form, so we expect it to be kind of rocky icy. So 
in the, about four and a half billion years ago, during the formation of the solar system, there were lots of these rocky, icy planetesimals. And one of these probably acted like a seed, if you like. And then it was far enough out in the solar system, this rocky, icy planetesimal managed to accrete lots and lots of gas and grow very, very large. So so we think we understand how solar systems form reasonably well. But uh, yes, it's not been directly confirmed. Thank you for that, Matt. Uh, Kate, Laura wants to know, in the great depths of the ocean where there's no light, no sense of three dimensions, what time mechanism do creatures living in complete darkness have in terms of sleep? Or do they even have a body clock so they know when to wake up and when to go to sleep? Fantastic question. Yeah, really fantastic question. Biological clocks are so important to biology, and it doesn't matter if you live with or without light, even though uh, the genes that regulate or the primary genes that regulate circadian rhythms, as we call them, are uh, light sensitive. So they typically are regulated by light. However, there are other cues that for instance, animals in the deep sea can use in order to have some sort of cycle in their biological activity uh, or just their physiology. And one of those is what the activity of everyone living above them in the parts of the ocean that do receive light input, what they're doing. So every day in all of the bodies of water on the ocean that have little tiny critters living in them, there is a mass migration that happens where they go to the surface at night to feed and then they come down uh, to the darker depths during the day so that they can avoid being eaten by things that see. It's called a diurnal uh, vertical migration. And so when, when that happens, that activity of going up to eat and then going back down, when you go up to eat and you start eating, you then start pooping. And so there are these kind of pulses in nutrients that can happen. Uh, You can also have seasonal variation in the amount of nutrients that are falling down just from phytoplankton blooms. So all of the plant type or the, the, the photosynthetic life that's living in the ocean, it will change based on the season. And so that is another cue that you can use as a clock. Right. So things that are sensitive to sunlight change their behavior. And this has like a domino effect where the repercussions of their activity changing ripple down in the water column to the dark depths where other creatures are then have having their body clocks entrained by their stomachs. Yeah, because literally all of the nutrients at the bottom like in the deep sea are coming from the surface, from the things living above them. So. Thank you very much, Kate. Jason, what was the first dinosaur ever found, someone wonders? And also, Stuart's asked us, how do we know if a dinosaur ate meat or not? So the first dinosaurs found um, probably are the um, mythological origins of griffins. And so it is thought that actually the fossils of a particular dinosaur, Protoceratops andruzi from Mongolia, which has kind of an almost a bird-like face, was actually thought to be the original kind of impetus for that myth. In the 1670s, there was a fossil described from the UK that was uh, the lower half of a femur of probably a sauropod dinosaur. It was not recognized as being a dinosaur. It was thought to be a giant. And in fact, in 1768, right after Linnaeus had established binomial nomenclature, coming up with a genus and a species name, because this bone actually had two rounded edges to it, um, it it was actually given the binomial name Scrotum Humanum for exactly why you would think. Um, Indeed. The the first dinosaur names that actually stick are uh, Megalosaurus and Iguanodon and Hylaeosaurus, which are based on fossils from the United Kingdoms that were discovered around the 1820s. And is that when people first became comfortable with the concept of a dinosaur. When did people begin to realize that there was this very long evolutionary timeline on Earth going back, you know, millions and millions and millions of years and that these were clearly 
antecedents of the life we see on Earth today? That's by, I think, about the early 1700s. People start to realize that actually there is life preserved through deep time in the fossil record. The connectivity of it through time is not recognized until much, much later. Because so people didn't there. even know how old the Earth was at that That's time, exactly did they? Right. had no idea the Earth was 4,500 right. million years old until actually relatively recently. Yeah. So actually they had no idea how, how, how quick these things had evolved or how long they hadn't been here for. The recognition of superposition of layers of rock does kind of – informally come in fairly early, but recognizing that what we're looking at is a succession of related organisms is much later. So for dinosaurs, that construct is really Richard Owen in 1842 when he puts the name to the group formally, and then it is recognized as being this particular group of extinct giant reptiles. And what about the meat-eating question? How do we know when they tuck into a burger versus uh, uh, prefer to eat grass? So the shape of their, of their teeth is a, is an excellent indicator of diet. Um, just like you can look at the teeth in our own mouths and, and watch their functions or look at the teeth of a cat or a dog and see how they can slice meat or grind food, um, the teeth of, di- of dinosaurs have the same thing. Meat-eating dinosaurs have almost steak knife-like teeth running along their mouths. Herbivorous dinosaurs have evolved these numerous strategies for actually very complex grinding of food. akin to what we would actually see in ruminant mammals today. Matt, you were going to say something. Um, Yeah, I was just going to come in on the age of the Earth things. There's quite an interesting uh, bit from astronomy from that point of view. So the age of the Earth also has to be the age of the sun as well. And for a long time, we didn't know how old the sun was because we didn't know what powered it. Um, And so before we understood stellar nuclear synthesis, like the process that's powering the sun right now, um, our best guess would it, it was gra- powered by some kind of gravitation. And if the sun is powered gravitationally, it can only be about 15 million years old. And so in the late 19th century, um, some preeminent physicists, particularly Lord Kelvin, one of the most famous physicists of his day, used this fact to argue against Darwin, right? He said the Earth and the sun can only be about 15 million years old because that's how old the sun has to be. What changed his mind? I'm not sure if his mind was ever changed, actually. I think the scientific community's mind was changed because we understood, we came to understand stellar nuclear synthesis, this process that can power stars for billions and billions of years. So he stuck to his guns right till the last. Now, this one's for you, Matt, because Ellen wants to know what officially determines if something is a planet and why is there all this confusion around Pluto, she says. Also, are there many other Pluto-like bodies in our solar system out there? Uh, Yes, so there's basically three rules. There's three things you have to fulfill in order to be a planet. Uh, So you have to be something orbiting a star. You have to be big enough to be spherical, so you've got to have enough mass that gravity can pull you into a sphere. And you've got to have cleared your orbit of debris. And so that third one is the slightly tricky one, that trip Pluto up. So um, orbiting a star is kind of obvious, right? You've just got to be gravitationally orbiting a star. Being spherical, just it means about being big enough. Uh, if you don't have enough mass, then you can be this slightly strange shape, like Mars has two moons called Phobos and Deimos, and they're both quite small, and, and they're both a bit peanut-shaped because they're not big enough to be pulled into a sphere. Uh, so you've got to be orbiting a star, you've got to be big. But you've also got to be, have cleared your orbit of debris, which means that if you imagine looking at the solar system from above and drawing a circle at the orbit, you have to be like the most major thing in that orbit to be classed as a planet. And it was that third definition that uh, was brought in in 2006, that trip Pluto up, because while the, the eight planets that we know of them right now are in nice clean orbits around the sun... Pluto orbits in a very messy outer part of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt, and there's all kinds of rocks and space junk out there. 
And uh, the definition was almost brought in uh, because if you come coming on to the second part of your question, because out in the Kuiper Belt, there are almost certainly tens of thousands of things or even hundreds of thousands of things similar to Pluto. Uh, so without this third definition, this uh, orbit clearing definition, you can end up with tens of thousands of planets in a solar system, which is just going to be kind of exhausting. So we say that all of these things in the messy part of the solar system are dwarf planets, and then all of the, the eight inner planets are the classical planets. Jason? I was going to ask on the debris question, does that mean that the, the, the boundary of what is a planet is always going to be in relation to the size of the star and the distance from the star? So if, if basically if, if gravitational pull is low enough that you're not clearing out a bunch of this debris, does that just mean that if, if, the, if our sun was bigger that there would be less debris out at that level and that um, then Pluto would be clear to be a planet? Um, well, I think the I think the debris isn't so much a function of the, the gravitational pull of the star. It's about the gravitational pull of the planet this, itself, okay, right? right? So, the debris is the stuff that's left over from the formation of the solar system when the planet was, you know, like gathering all the matter to itself and growing. And for the eight planets that we care about, like the eight classical planets. I'm being very harsh to Pluto now. Aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> For the eight planets of the solar system, they have you know all, all the matter that was around them in their orbit as they were growing. They accreted onto themselves. Um, the outskirts of the solar system, the Kuiper belt where Pluto lives, uh, this is almost where planet formation didn't fully complete, if you like. So there's a lot of this debris left over. Quick question then. So I can understand that, uh, say, in the region of, of Jupiter, its own gravity is pretty powerful. So anything in the environs of the planet as it forms, they're going to be drawn into it. But what about the things on the opposite side of its orbit? So, you know, the other side of the sun from where Jupiter is, how would that get cleared and become part of Jupiter or wouldn't it at all? Um, well, you have to think about the the early the early solar system as being a very, very messy, chaotic place with all kinds of bodies forming and crashing into each other. And things form hierarchically. They form bottom up in the solar system. So individual molecules of gas and dust in, in the primordial clouds coalesce together and, and then you go from you know, molecules of gas to dust grains to tiny pebbles to slightly bigger pebbles to rocks to mountains to planetesimals to planets. And all the time this process is going on, you have all kind of jostling and colliding. It's a very, very chaotic process. And it's only over billions of years that you end up with uh, just one single planet orbiting at that distance. Thank you very much, Matt. Now, Jason, can you help us with this question, which is coming from Jackie? Jackie says... Is there still a debate as to what killed off the dinosaurs? So where are we with this? Because you hear lots of stories. So do we now have a definitive idea as to why the dinosaurs met their end? So there are two answers to that question. The first is, of course, that dinosaurs are doing fine today. There's about 18,000 species of living birds. Um, but the second half of that question is about what happens to dinosaurs that aren't birds. And the last of the non-bird dinosaurs go extinct around the end of the Cretaceous, about 66 and a half million years ago. And that coincides with very strong geologic evidence for an extraterrestrial impact of an asteroid or another form of bolide. It appears to be a, a fundamental global environmental change that corresponds with a mass extinction event in both terrestrial and marine environments. So for the non-birds, it appears that the very last of them went extinct possibly as a result of this impact. Were there not some enormous volcanoes going off at around the same time that were also had the potential to make similar changes to the Earth's climate and the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, so the last uh, million or two years of the Cretaceous, of the Mesozoic, there's um, what is called flood basalts in India, the Deccan Traps, which are a kilometer and a half thick sequence of volcanic rock formed from these massive volcanoes. And they absolutely are changing Earth's atmospheric chemistry during this period of time. They're a, they're a big and an important component of a changing environment. Kate? 
If the crater theory is what happened and this big catastrophic event is what knocked out all the giant dinosaurs, do you think that it was required for that sort of geological historical event to happen in order for mammals to have become so successful and ergo humans to have become what we are today? Yeah, we we think a lot about that. Um, whether or not the rise of mammals in the Cenozoic is the result of uh, ecological release or the loss of competitive exclusion. Uh, and there's some pretty good evidence that that might be the case. Uh, certainly patterns of, of body size evolution in mammals show that they get bigger when the dinosaurs are gone. We diversify as a clade um, within a couple million years of dinosaurs having gone extinct. So, you know, it's a, it's, I think it's tricky to, to pin that down 100%, but the evidence looks pretty good for it. I've got a question here from uh, Georgia. I'll read this exactly as it's written because it does have some rather nice language, which I can't do better than. Georgia says, when you have something underwater, it gets really degraded and manky much quicker than it does on land. Do sea creatures experience this, Kate? And do they need special adaptations to stop them rusting? So why don't fish go rusty, basically? Well, fish are not made of iron, so uh, they don't rust as a metal would corrode. However, most creatures have some sort of mechanism for turning over the external surface of their body in order to cope with the harsh environment in which you live in, including humans. I mean, we're shedding skin cells that turn into dust that we have to dust from our homes. It's 40,000 yeah. skin cells a second, yeah. apparently. Tons. We're, so we mm. have a, we have so a fish, mechanism. fish do the same thing. Yeah, so fish will shed scales. Crustaceans and arthropods, actually, they go through more dramatic changes where they'll go through what's called a molt, where they literally grow a new exoskeleton and just pop out of the old one. Uh, so soft shell crab is when you're harvesting crabs that are at that in-between phase where they've just popped out of their old their old exoskeleton and they're, they haven't hardened up into their new one. So they basically will grow a new one and it'll be a, a soft, leathery surface that they're very vulnerable until it has a chance to deposit the hard uh, materials that that make it that hard crab surface. But that's um, literally just replacing your surface. But what about suppressing things like microbes? Because they grow really well in wet, damp, gooey places. So these animals are continuously in contact with a damp environment that's bringing things in that could infect them. So do they have other adaptations to fend that off? Yeah, so a lot of aquatic creatures will have a mucos mucus layer over the surface of their body. Uh, mantis shrimp actually are super slimy. Um, and, uh, actually every time I'm trying to, sometimes in my experiments, I need to glue something to them and it doesn't work very well because it just comes off. So they're, they're just so covered in this layer of slime that presumably has, uh, mechanisms of defense against microbes and infection, uh, much like we have mechanisms of defense for, against that. And unfortunately, we have no mechanism to defend us against the ravages of time because we have run out of time. And so it remains for me to say a very big thank you to our guests this week, who were Kate Feller, who you heard there, Matt Bothwell, Diana Alexander and Jason Head. The show was put together by George Mills and Katie Haler. And do join us next time when we're going to be talking about the science of allergies. That will be a show, I assure you, not to be sneezed at. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSLC and Rolls-Royce. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.